From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. I think it's pretty clear that most of us who uh, learned history, oh, let's say in school 40 years ago, uh, didn't really learn American history. A lot of it was left out. A lot of it was actively suppressed. And uh, that certainly is the case with the epidemic that broke out among people who were freed from slavery after the Civil War. A few years ago, Jim Downs wrote about this. He's a historian at Connecticut College. And, uh, Jim, I got the link to your book through the uh, New York Times 1619 Project, where they're trying to remake the teaching of American history. And I want to know how you... How did you stumble on this uh, this epidemic that uh, affected the emancipated slaves? So one of the biggest areas of research and of interest among U.S. historians during the Civil War and Reconstruction is the ending of slavery and the beginning of freedom. So there are tons of books written about it, from political history to legal history to economic history. And so at a very young age, as an undergraduate, I became immersed in this literature. I became fascinated by the saga of of the war and of the making and the beginning of freedom. And so when I began my doctoral research, I started to go to the archives and read through the sources. And I found a lot of the stuff that most people talk about, the idea that black people for the first time in our nation's history began to actively mobilize for political rights, for um, schools, for land rights, um, to be elected into political office. And then in sort of bits and pieces and fragments and clues, I found references to smallpox. And when I went back to the larger books on the period, I saw no reference to a smallpox epidemic. And then I start finding evidence that it killed thousands of people in the Sea Islands, which are islands right off the coast of Charleston and Savannah. These were before the war large um, plantations that cultivated a number of crops, mostly cotton. And after the war, they witnessed um, severe mortality. And I started to sort of think about why isn't that we, why don't we know about this? And I grew up in the 80s and 90s at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And in learning about and knowing about HIV AIDS, I knew that disease was not just a reaction of the natural environment, but it was political. And so the, the traditional story goes, without going into a lot of depth, that the Reagan administration, that the federal government, that the CDC first ignored cases of, of HIV, and then this, this, the epidemic skyrocketed. That shows us how disease can be political. It's not just about an assessment of health conditions, it often gets filtered or refracted through a political lens. And so what happened was the smallpox epidemic wasn't told. In part, the champions of freed slaves, who were at the time Republicans, didn't want to draw attention to the fact that all of these former slaves were dying at the moment of freedom because that would actually prove this long-standing belief that black people aren't inferior, and that black people need white people for supervision. So even the people who are sympathetic to, uh, to the freed slaves did not want this story to get out? Right. They didn't, want to get, they didn't want it to get out because they were afraid that the Confederates and the pro-South and the, and the pro-Confederacy and the pro-slavery people would say, look, 
this is evidence that black people need white masters. When they're free, look what happens. They get sick and they die. This was the justification for slavery um, throughout the end of the 18th century to the beginning of the 19th century, which was, listen, people in the South would say, listen, we're doing black people a favor by keeping them enslaved. We're providing them with support. We're providing them with homes. We're providing them with work. And they would point it to the conditions in the North where people, the newly arrived immigrants, were suffering from high rates of alcoholism, were suffering in overcrowded city dwellings, and they said they created this notion of the happy slave. So the minute that enslaved people at the end of the war start dying in large numbers, the people who were sympathetic to their cause were afraid that their adversaries would use this as proof that black people could never be independent. Well, what kind of numbers are we talking about in this epidemic, Jim? So it's, it's I would say, at the very the lowest count, I mean, the most um, cautionary would be 60,000. But I know it's the number of people who died from smallpox is even larger than that. And my book came out, Sick from Freedom, many years ago. And since then, um, statisticians at NYU and other places have taken my thesis and have actually done the hard statistical labor of measuring the census data. And they're able to chart that there's decline in the population as a result of this. Uh, more to the point, just recently, I think it was in I think it was Mississippi, um, someone just uncovered a cemetery where, an unknown Mark cemetery, where something like 800 black people, former slaves, died of smallpox. And it wasn't recorded in any of the um, traditional documentation. So part of this problem, unlike today, I mean, today we still run into clerical errors and not covering and not getting all the, the right data. But in the 19th century, when the country is like just developing a, a sort of central um, form of, of record keeping, the numbers, um, they were unable to often capture all of the numbers. So it's at least, I mean, it's at least bare minimum of 60,000, probably more, um, who died from the epidemic. And it's, it's, it's part of this unknown story, and that's why I was thrilled to see that it was highlighted as part of the 1619 Project, because it is, as you sort of mentioned in the beginning, it's not the story that we're normally told. We're normally told, told that the minute that um, emancipation begins and freedom begins, it's a triumphant moment. And it is a triumphant moment for all the reasons in which slavery ends, but it's also accompanied by this devastating epidemic. But you also believe that this is one of the reasons why our present-day healthcare system is screwed up. So explain that. Right. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of parallels. I mean, one of the most persisting beliefs that continues to sort of prevail today is this notion that black people are inherently different from white people. And we see that um, not only in emergency rooms where doctors sort of treat black patients who suffer from hypertension differently from white patients, down into the way in which we watch black athletes um, perform in the Olympics and other sporting events and say that they have, you know, a, a, an innate advantage. So this idea that there's a difference between the races, I mean, that develops, um, you know, as early as the 18th century, and the Civil War and Reconstruction sort of solidifies this idea, and the number of people who die, the large number of black people who die, um, provide proof to what early 20th century eugenicists believe is the difference between the races. And so 
it becomes part of this long-standing story. The second part of it is you might remember the develop during the 1990s during Clinton's administration in which we start thinking about black women as the welfare queen, that there were these black women who were dependent upon federal assistance, and they were sitting back, they're kicking back, they're watching soap operas all day, and they're collecting all of this money. That idea we typically chart as beginning in the 70s or 80s and the rise of the welfare state a little earlier. But in actuality, when this epidemic breaks out and the federal government comes face-to-face with it, some of the reaction is don't provide assistance for these people because they will become dependent upon it. So when you think about contemporary debates regarding affordable health care, when you think about welfare assistance, those ideas that people are going to become dependent upon it, those ideas did not originate today. They began in the immediate aftermath of slavery and the fear that black people would become dependent. And then there's also the concern about the, you know, the federal government and the economy. That is to say, when we think about why we need affordable health care today, I mean, it's actually embedded in the language. We need something that's affordable. People today rarely think about the ways in which political economy, labor, your job status affects your health, and that also developed during this period as well. As soon as the war ends, the federal government says, well, let's try to get black people to return to the South to replant the profitable cotton seed. Black people don't want to return to the South. They don't want to return to plantation labor. And even when they begrudgingly agree to do it, it takes a long time for crops to harvest. It's not an overnight process. During that period, where do they get food? Where do they get money? Where do they get living? Where do they find shelter? And so as a result, they become sick. And so sickness is not a consequence of the natural world. It's a consequence of this uneven economic order. And I think that's something that we see today, too, that the high rates of illness and sickness is not just a result of the way that your body you know, reacts to disease, but it, it is a result of your access to health care, which is determined by your um, economic status. So what should have happened in this case? When, when it, was it clear? I guess I should ask this question. Was it clear yeah. to those who could have done something about it? Because we'd had epidemics right. before, right? Was it clear to somebody who could have done something about it that uh, there was a smallpox epidemic among black people that could have been treated? Right. Well, so since, I mean, so I'll give you the historical answer, and then I'll tie it into the present. So the historical answer is that since the end of the 18th century, about 60 years or more before this epidemic, and even centuries earlier, people knew how to respond to smallpox. I mean, they knew that if they just quarantined the infected person, that because smallpox is a virus, it wouldn't spread from human to human. So that was uh, a, a sort of common way of treatment. By the, by the end of the 18th century, people began, doctors and medical officials began vaccination and inoculation. Now, this is a, a more sophisticated form of treatment uh, in the 18th century, but they had a protocol to do it. Because the war crowds tons of black people into refugee communities, and this is something that we don't think about either, you're freed. Where do you go that night? The military freed you. You freed yourself. Where do you go that evening? So what happens is, after the war, and I explain in my book, Sick from Freedom, you have the creation of all of these refugee communities, which are, again, another unknown part of our history. And in those crowded refugee communities, the government 
argues they don't have the space to quarantine infected people. So that's part of the reason why the epidemic spreads like wildfire across the black population. Secondly, and this is the point, you know, should have what they should have done. I mean, as a historian, we say, we try to stay away from the word should. But what I would say is this. When Lincoln thinks about the Emancipation Proclamation, when he thinks about the 13th Amendment, which Spielberg features in his, his film, it's all about the political side of this, the policy side. What does this mean in terms of how it's going to change politics and change policy? No one accounts for where people are going to get food. No one accounts for where people are going to find shelter. They're thinking about this purely and very myopically in terms of just the policy. Similarly, we see a, a, a contemporary crisis um, exploding at the border. People have an argument about what should happen at the border. You can agree with it. You could disagree with it. The argument is that what people, again, fail to see is the medical crises of this policy. They're planning to either isolate these people, put them into a refugee camp, not to let them into the country. It's not a question ideologically if you agree with it or not. It's a question of no one attended to the fact that there weren't toothbrushes for the people, there wasn't enough food, that what happens when you crowd people into a particular location and someone gets sick, it then spreads more. So in other words, sadly, the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction, we haven't learned that lesson because we're seeing it repeated today when the debate around the border is just about immigration policy and it's not about the unexpected medical consequences that erupt as a result of those policy decisions. Now, I can understand why the this suppressed post-Civil War history wasn't taught among white communities. Was it known among black communities? Was there a at least a, a storytelling aspect to this where that would have been shared with other people? Yes. I mean, there's yes, yes and no. I mean, I think that, I mean, there's a, there's a long history of, black history passing down through oral tradition. So there's definitely that part of it. Uh, so that's, it's there. The second part of it is that because the historical pre- profession dating back from its origins um, in the end of the 19th century was segregated and believed and held on to white supremacy, the historians who wrote about the South during this time were only writing about white people and they ignored the conditions of black people. But there is, there are, or there were, um, black historians writing um, in, at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. So um, what I uncovered in my research, for example, was there's a record number of black women who were earning their master's theses um, at the turn of the 20th century. They never, pub- they never published their theses into books and into articles, but they had public, you know, they had written these dissertations and theses, and they have this, they have this sort of history of, a more traditional history of what emancipation looks like that's more familiar to us today. As far as the medical stuff is concerned, I mean, part of it is that when I describe it, it might sound, wow, that sounds interesting, that sounds fascinating, and I'm putting it together in a coherent order. The way that 19th century record-keeping works is that it's really boring. <laughs> and I mean, you could say that about a lot of things, but a lot of records. But it's not there in full cloth. So one of the things that I did in my book was I follow, I had to sort of like work as a detective and piece together you know, random pieces of, of, of clues in order to create the kind of narrative I just explained to you. So it's not like the story is sitting someplace, and it's just a matter of uncovering it. But I think that 
you know, there's also a long history in Harriet Washington and other um, writers talk about black people being suspicious of white medical treatment. We see this with the syphilis case, the Tuskegee case, but even prior to that. So I think that they may not have had the story in full cloth of the smallpox epidemic, but there may have been a reticence about what medicine meant, what doctors mean, uh, what white intervention means in coming in a white lab coat. What do you hope will be the outcome of this 1619 project and, and this general effort to to daylight these pockets of American history that have been suppressed? I mean, one of the things I think it's doing is that it's actually starting a conversation. I mean, it's I think that there's ways in which it's, it, it's basically a prequel to a number of books and articles that are already out there. So, I mean, from the scholarly perspective, as a scholar of this, many of us knew this material, but the brilliance of the project was that it made it accessible to people. So I'm hoping that what happens is that if people are interested in it, they did a terrific job of citing scholars and citing scholarly work, that they can then go and read those books and and and, and learn more. Um, the, the other part of it is... To, it develops, I think, a healthy, a healthy sort of analytical mindset to think about the past, to sort of not think about history as a series of dates and names and events to memorize, but rather it's a story. It's actually a contested story. It's a story that's changing. It's a story that's changing not only by who's interpreting it, but it's a story that's changing in terms of what new evidence emerges. I mean, that's one of the things that students often think, oh, well, history is boring, everything's written, we know it all. But actually, we are constantly uncovering new pieces of evidence. We're constantly uncovering new ways of reading old forms of evidence. So I think that that's, I think that's important. And I think that um, ultimately, ideally, something like the 1619 Project will challenge, you know, historians to, uh, to, to write textbooks that better include this. Now, that said, there's problems with the 1619 Project. I mean, 1619 is not the first day that slavery arrives in what later becomes the, the country of the United States. I mean, by the 1550s, you have, through the Spanish Empire in Florida and in other parts of the Southwest and the Southeast, you have slaves. So on one level, some historians have actually fired shots back at the 1619 Project because 1619 is not, is not really the origin of slavery in what becomes the United States. We can chart that earlier. So that's good, right? I mean, that's just creating a conversation, and that's what historians do. We argue, we debate, we make interpretations. And so it's not the end of a conversation. It's actually the prelude to one. You sound very excited. Are you usually, <laughs> are, are you usually yeah, this well, excited about something, but you seem very energized just by the whole concept here? Yeah, but, but because I'm thrilled about it. I mean, I've been I've dedicated, you know, over ten to fifteen years working on my book Six from Freedom. I'm I'm excited that it's gotten this kind of attention in 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 the press. And I, you know, I'm still uncovering stuff and, and new new material and new ways of thinking about the past. So it's 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 really fantastic and terrific to have an audience who's who's interested in reading it. Jim Downs is an historian, teaches at Connecticut College, and is the author of Sick from Freedom, African-American Illness and Suffering During the Civil War and Reconstruction. Jim, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast, and... 
you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.